us to the stage. This panel, number two, is on what makes a spin-out and an emerging manager attractive to investors. So as we have the, the last panelist exit, we just want to give them a chance to, uh, to leave the room uh, in case someone wanted to connect with them, just so we can keep the event flowing. Uh, we'll need to do that for all the panelists today, so appreciate cooperation on that. We have this panel now, one more panel, and then we're going to have a full hour uh, catered networking lunch uh, so you can get to know each other. I know that's uh, the main reason you're here today. But also we found it's one of the most productive ways to have you connect with the people who are most appropriate for you to be having lunch with or talking to during cocktails by having the investors here on stage today and hearing what they're looking for um, so that you know out of the whole room of people what three to four groups are most aligned with what you're looking to get done in business. Great, so uh, we're going to go down the line now and have each person introduce himself. And if you can keep it to just one or two minutes each, uh, that'll help, help keep the mo event moving along. And right before we jump into that, I just want to point out one thing, is that on the last panel there is a comment that I ignore a lot of the 800 emails that come towards me if it's not through a trusted referral or looks like it's someone uh, that is high trust, that has a feeling of high trust around it. And I think that's really critical because a lot of times people hear, oh, referrals are the best way to do business, but if you're here trying to get progress and get traction in the family office space, maybe you only have one or two referral sources. So I think how do you position yourself and add value first so you have that uh, position of high trust is critical to this whole process and everything we're talking about and working with family offices. So. Uh, Charlie, why don't you start uh, us out and let's go down the line one or two minutes each on your uh, perspective and your, your firm. Sure. Yeah, just a short introduction. Uh, hello, I'm Charlie Liu. Uh, grew up in China, uh, came to the States for college and uh, probably had the shortest career among everyone here. I started my career at, uh, in investment uh, with uh, Franklin Templeton in the global macro team. Uh, if some of you invest in other asset classes, I was in the part uh, team of uh, Michael Hassenstab and uh, so I joined the team at uh, the peak of Ireland trade and then left before Ukraine, so good timing. Uh, and then pivoted to FinTech, joined, uh, back then no one heard of it, it's a, a FinTech company out of uh, Amsterdam called Adyen. Uh, we process payments for top of uh, the top tech companies around the world, Facebook, Netflix, Spotify. And then on the side, uh, at the sideline, I'm doing uh, some Android investments and also uh, entrepreneur on my own, uh, sommelier, winemaker, and then also starting a stealth mode uh, startup now. Great, thank you. Uh, I'm Urvashi Bhagat. Uh, I have um, a broad background in healthcare. I started out on um, healthcare insurance side, and then I experimented some with the biotech uh, pharma side. And uh, now I'm in the nutrition prevention and wellness side because actually I was. Uh, very frustrated with how the pharma side is working and how the uh, insurance side is working uh, in the sense that we are not preventing problems that we could be preventing from ground up and the entire system is structured in uh, rewarding uh, treatment. And so that was, uh, I found that to be a big problem and so I'm motivated by solving uh, wellness problems from ground up through uh, bigger solutions, so broader solutions. Uh, I'm not interested in uh, 
sort of uh, this is a new nutrient, this is a new supplement, but how do we solve the problem overall? Uh, so I founded a company, Asha Nutrition Sciences. I have been a founder before. And so we have this uh, Asha Nutrition Sciences that is sounding, found solving some problems at ground up. And that's the kind of investments I look for uh, that are solving problems on broader level. Great, thank you. David? Morning, I'm David Mess. I'm a venture capitalist. I've been in the venture capital game for about 20 years investing early, late stage, depending on the, where I was in my career. Right now I run a firm called Off The Grid Ventures, uh, which I started about uh, two years ago. So I'm an emerging manager, that's my presence on the panel. And I'm also a co-founder of the Wharton Alumni Angels of Silicon Valley. Great, thank you. My name, my name is Masha Drokova. I'm angel investor and general partner at venture fund called Devan Ventures. <coughs> we are, I invest in early stage companies in B2B and consumer space, AI, FinTech, emergent tech, and uh, we invest in companies and support them with PR. And my background is PR. I did PR for WeWork, House, Hotel Tonight, Get, and many companies which grew from early stage to unicorns. Great. Darren? Yeah, and good morning. Darren Kaplan. Uh, I was the founder of a, a hot HR tech company named Haiku Labs. I then went on to start a venture fund with a couple Google and Apple operators. Um, this is our fund one. And we studied the space and we looked at how much money um, early stage rounds are, like two, three million dollar seed rounds. And we then started to look at how many of those companies fail. So we're applying a, an early stage PE model to a real early stage. Our first, uh, first company goes live in October. And it was, again, based on that model of looking at very smart people that built individual technologies but didn't look at market. And we put them together and starting a productivity company. So thank you for being here and happy to ask your questions. Great. So Darren, uh, in your case, uh, how do you differentiate taking a private equity approach versus a VC approach when you're working with the early stage companies? Like what, what's really distinguishes you from uh, others? Um, on which part, deal flow or raising money? Uh, how you structure the deals uh, or yeah, how you structure your investments. Yeah, I, I think for us on this fund, um, we spent a lot of time researching and, and looking at Larry Culp and his, th his beliefs of roll-ups and bolt-ons. So for us, everything we're engineering is based on an exit strategy. And I think that's where I think we're more aligned with PE because we're looking for deals that we can put together then exit versus IPO. And there's a ton of money out there and there's just not a lot of good deals out there. Sure, sure, great, thank you. So I want to go down the line with a uh, real quick kind of uh, maybe two or three minute at most case studies of an early stage investment uh, that you have made and how you source the deal, uh, valued or structured it, whatever the most interesting component is it. Maybe it's an unusual way of sourcing the deal or a great structure you came up with. And maybe we'll start with you again, Charlie, and just uh, work our way down uh, with one example each. Sounds good. Um, I'll just add some interesting stories. So the most interesting deal I made was uh, I got to know this founder at a random wine tasting trip in Chile, in Cochaco Valley. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur, so uh, built and sold two uh, security companies and started in this smart wine machine. Right now, as uh, we 
uh, we just closed B round last year, and then right now uh, doing very well in uh, hotels, uh, luxury hotels um, around the world. Um, just interesting in the sense that you know, coming from a sort of a, a public market and sovereign credit market investor, uh, the way I was trained it was just always looking for the alpha. There's so many beta around the world, and to find alpha, you need to find the edge, and then which means that you need to set up your comfort zone and go to places never been to and meet people you've never met with. And that's how actually um, how I see it with uh, so many friends around me who had some career in investment banking and then later in VC and now try to be building up their, their own funds and try to be emerging investors. And most of them coming from uh, this traditional investment background uh, probably lack some um, operational experiences and, uh, and scaling startups. So try to find someone who differen can differentiate from those kind of people who have sort of really strong independent thinking and try dare to be the contrarian. I think that's really important. Right, great. I think a, a lot of family offices you get the biggest returns when they're arbitraging some big inefficiency and they get in you know, early like Peter Thiel's famous for doing and just double down where there's you know, empty space versus just following the herd exactly. into things. Yeah. Uh, Arbashi? Thank you. So like Charlie, I'm also very focused. I'm myself focused and I look for uh, founders who are focused. And they are, I'm always, 99% of what I'm trying to do is what is it, what problem are you solving? So the bigger the problem you are solving, the foundation up you are solving, that's what's most interesting to me. And how focused you are on what you're doing. Um, so that's 99% that's for me and I stay within my area which is uh, health and wellness because that's where I find I am the most competent and, and that's the kind of competence I'm looking for in founders. Um, drive to make money is good because unless you can do that you can't succeed in what you're doing because you have to build upon initial success and so on and so forth but the goal is to solve the problem that's what I'm looking for uh, that's what motivates me great thank you by, by chance through centimillionaire advisors we just signed a uh, healthcare family and just like you not only are they focused just on healthcare but then also real estate for them is they're looking for something that's going to help transform and push forward the healthcare space. They just feel like it's so broken. And I'm hearing that again and again among uh, you know, really smart healthcare people. I think a lot of people gravitate around how big of a problem that is. Not just not an impact investor lens, but just that big profits could be made while fixing you know, a broken system, basically. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a huge problem that we don't pay attention to the fact that we are motivating treatment. So if you're going to pay $10,000 to someone to uh, perform a heart surgery, then they are going to perform a heart surgery. I think the system uh, has is fundamentally broken, and we have to fix that. Right, great. Uh, David? Yeah, so when I arrived in the US about 15 years ago, I ran into these type of issues. Uh, the other thing that frustrated me majorly was to be treated as a financial pariah. It was impossible to get a credit card. Everything was very, very difficult. Um, so when I ran into a founder uh, that set out to solve that exact problem, it took all but 30 seconds to know that I wanted to pursue this if the founder checked out and we could do something about it. So we invested in a company called Credit Stacks that provides credit cards to immigrants that come to work on work visas and for qualified jobs in companies such as Google, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they use AI to assess somebody's credit risk. They don't need to rely on any credit scoring or anything like that. 
And so they're able to penetrate the market, go into these companies or relocation agencies, and really grow. And when you see how the numbers tick up, it's a phenomenal business. And the only reason why I ran into it is because I knew the problem deeply. And when I met the entrepreneur, it was instant connection. I know there's a huge opportunity in consumer lending to underbanked or underserved or alternative financing, whether it's lending or, or just banking services. It's a huge opportunity right now. Yeah, it is. It's a huge opportunity in the parts of the market that really have no access. Most of them are reasonably low-income people and so on. And unfortunately, they get abused by, you know, uh, how should I say, glorified sharks, <laughs> sure. lending sharks. Uh, in this case, it's really the pre-prime market. It's people with prime market risk and yet we don't have access because of where they came from. And that's, that's a fantastic market opportunity. I heard there's, uh, there's one lender that uh, gets your permission to track data sources and app usage on your phone. And it uses 500 different data points of where you live, where you go, how late you stay at night, what you're buying, uh, et cetera. And those 500 data points and uses like AI to give you like a score of how risky of a person you are to lend to. And I think there's all sorts of innovations going on in that area that's pretty exciting. I can't comment on details, but I see what you're saying. Great, sure, sure, yeah. Uh, Masha? Um, I look very carefully on what customers think and say about the product. Uh, one of the investments <coughs> that we made early is a company called Superhuman that recently closed uh, Series B with Andreessen on just 163 million plus. And it's grown very fast. And uh, I was paying, it's an uh, app that creates the fastest email experience. And they sell it for $30 per month, and it's premium experience. And you basically go through your inbox three, five times faster with the help of their technology and with the help of their features. Like, it was three, we met this founder through another portfolio founder, and uh, it was three things. First thing was uh, just the way how customers speak about the product, and you can go to Twitter and you can see dozens of people raving about the product, and they have 180 thousands people in the wait list. Um, another thing is experience as a founder. One founder had a successful exit before another founder exited the company for more than $300 million, and they're still in their early 30s, and they have successful background. And number three is culture. You could look at the culture through uh, the language that people use with each other and with you, and you can ask indirect questions to understand better the culture, and it's good if you go to the office of the company and see other people, see the vibes, see how they interact with each other. These three things been criteria, culture, customers, and experience of the founders. Great, thank you. Darren? So for, for us at our fund, we took a different approach. Uh, we play um, zero to B, so that's kind of that framework. Not afraid of money, so I'm not worried about valuation or check sizes. Um, but for our aha moment, again, came from all of these early stage companies dying and coming to us when they have 90 days of cash left. And I love that because I'm going to come and buy you for a dollar on the 91st day. Because what I look for is fundamentals in how did you get to your product. And I think most founders, I feel, um, do not spend enough time understanding their customer. So we spend a lot of time on process and discovery. We record, we look, and we constantly build out that community. So when I see early stage zero to A, and I can look at a product just like all of us, and we all can just look and be like, there's no, they overbuilt this. 
and this is a swing and a miss, but the way I look at it, it's like, oh great, you know data security? Great, I'm gonna buy your company for a dollar because I need just you. I don't need your code, I just need you as that data security and some of your insights because you spent 18 months figuring out something that at the end of the 18 months, nobody wanted. But if I take that and I put that with your productivity tool that you didn't figure out because you didn't do discovery and you overbuilt, I take you and you, but I have a list of things we wanna build. So I just look at it as um, poor discovery. I, I look at words like serial entrepreneur and I feel like that's a fail, I don't think, because the people I know they hit their home run and they're in Hawaii. The people I know that say I'm a serial entrepreneur means they started seven companies and they still have to work. That's not a serial entrepreneur. So I look at that as more as a negative than a positive. Great, thank you. Uh, yes? Can I make a comment about Masha and, and Darren? Um, I think you're, what you're saying is absolutely right that you want to see what the customers say about the product. But I think there's a caveat that sometimes customers don't know and they have to be I taught. Don't, I don't agree with that. It's the, the issue with that is it's poor discovery. It's been proven on how to ask questions and bring people through a journey. I agree at some point that people don't know what they want, but the founders don't know how to ask questions. That uh, is the problem. I think it depends on the industry. Sometimes in some industries, some markets, there is a long development cycle. But again, you get out of that development cycle in 18 months and no one wants it. Whose fault is that? Like, um, and then I come in and buy you for a dollar. But I'm gonna, so I, I'm, a, I'm gonna push back because I think it's a fun panel to push back, but I put it back on founder. Again, I run teams that are technical data science sales growth and I love your background. So I, I can go the range of sales to data science. The teams I build are all PhDs from Stanford, MIT. But I, I still think that each one of those groups need to understand how discovery works. Yeah. Uh, the field that I am in, it, it can take a decade or it can take two decades uh, to come around to understand the depths of what we are talking about. Many, many scientists, scientists coming from National Institutes of Health, uh, worldwide scientists, have failed to understand, understand lipids for last uh, two decades or last four decades. Uh, they have taught uh, low fat, high omega-3, and everybody has now turned around. So it took so long for the scientists to understand it. How do we expect the general public to understand it? I, so I, I, but I, on that, I've studied that space, and I think that's a bigger problem. Um, the government messed that up as well. If everyone looks at the food pyramid, in the 1990s, every college girl, when they wanted to lose weight, said, I just want to eat white rice and chicken. Now you give a girl a carb or a guy a carb, they're like, that's a fat. So I think that's a bigger problem than exactly. academics. Exactly, um, I agree with that. And that's my point, that if the government has, been, uh, has failed to understand and has misled people for uh, several decades, how do we expect uh, Joe Blow to understand? So it's going to take time to educate the Joe Blow. Great. <laughs> Great, so uh, I wanna go back to a question on the last panel about financials and how much projections matter. I think one challenge for some private investors maybe here in the room is that if they're running a family office, 
and acquiring companies, maybe on a multiple of EBITDA, they might pride themselves on getting four or five times EBITDA, maybe they pay six times EBITDA, uh, sometimes for companies, those are really common multiples. Uh, and that might mean that they're paying uh, a multiple on revenue that's much, much lower than a VC or a fast growth company from Silicon Valley, et cetera. Um, a lot of times people look at pro formas and they're never bad. The projections are always great, right? Even the conservative ones are great. You're not gonna show an investor, oh, we might fail and lose all your money. And that's scenario A, that that scenario is not shown on the, on the slide. It might be talked about, but uh, the challenge for a lot of family offices when investing in BC I found is that they look at a company that some idea and some programmers and they give themselves a $5 million valuation. How else do you raise a million dollars and not give up all your motivation? And meanwhile, the company they just bought with a million dollars a year of EBITDA, they just bought it for you know, uh, $5 million, which they can grow rapidly because they know that space. It's not like there's no growth prospects for it or they wouldn't be buying it. So if there's investors here in the room that have this challenge of valuing early stage companies, I wonder if a few of you that have seen hundreds uh, like David with the Wharton Alumni Angels. You know, uh, you probably see a lot of deal flow from that. Darren, you know, it sounds like you look at a lot of deals. How do you go about valuations? How much weight do you put on the projections? And what advice would you have for private investors trying to navigate all of that? Sure, happy to start there. Um, and I've seen thousands of deals. Uh, I, I think when it comes to early stage investing, really the valuation of a specific deal is not what matters most. What matters most is your overall discipline in not overpaying for deal deals. I think that's really the way to look at it. Because when we think about valuation of an early stage deal, the important part for us is to make sure that we keep every party incentivized and that the incentives are aligned. Meaning, of course, if you buy a company that has zero revenues, there is no multiple, right? If you buy a company that has very limited revenues, it's growing fast, there is also no multiple that could apply there. What we wanna make sure is that we know what the company can grow to. And so we imagine exit scenarios. And from there, we derive what we think our multiple on investment is going to be. And we look at whether that's commensurate to risk. So that's really how we run it. We run it results-based. And not so much, hey, this, this company is really worth X today because that is really a very subjective call. And do you find with your angel investor group when people come in and pitch that many have overly lofty, we're gonna capture 2% of the market, so we think our valuation is really big, or do you find that most people have pretty conservative estimates and that's not a, uh, a back and forth trouble point with negotiations? No, any good entrepreneur would be a, a wild-eyed uh, optimist anyway, so we don't give too much credence to what we see in the numbers. We try to derive our own, our own perspective and build our own scenarios and then work on that. Sure, okay, great. Anyone else wanna comment on valuation? I mean, since I was asked, I, I think for me, and if we look at family offices, no different than venture. Um, although I'm here and I, I don't have a CPA, but behind me at our organization, we have economists and PhDs that run numbers. And we just like to see, um, you know, when you crank it what, does it, what does the output look like? So for us, we wanna see quarter over quarter price increasing. We wanna understand how you think about pricing. We wanna understand how you force to scale and then um, we see everything that's failed, so it's easy to see where they missed, and a lot of the time is they don't charge, um, and they don't know how to scale to even get to those valuations. Great. There's something I could add, because it's the next thing that logic, which is really when you look at the venture capital world today, uh, you know, some people worry because they see very fast inflating uh, valuations, late stage valuations are completely insane, actually series B, even series A valuations are sometimes insane. And so in our game, actually, if you invest very early, 
there's actually a fantastic arbitrage to be made, right? Of course, state discipline try to invest at an average of five million pre, not 10 to 15 or let alone 20. But if you do those early investments, you can even exit some of your positions, <coughs> sorry, through secondary transactions at the Series B or Series C and make between 20 and 50 times the money because the market is way over overinflated, because the entire industry has been pulled up by funds that are, bi that are bigger and bigger, right? And so that's also something to keep in mind. Great. Masha? I think we mostly trying to look at opportunity and if it's something that can grow very much, we're trying to look at companies which has uh, on the big market with good product experience and have capacity to grow over 10 billion or, I or a little bit less. But our I think most of the deals that we do, there is some lead investor and most of the deals we do, there is a lead investor who was in competition with five, six, seven, eight other lead investors, offered some term sheet and entrepreneur chose this lead investor. And uh, the, uh, it's usually very good, very competitive deals and it takes effort to be a part of this deal and it takes effort and right strategy in terms of your check size and in terms of your value add to be part of this deal. So in most of the cases, we are in the rounds where it's as a big, large lead investors and we take not majority of the round, but we agree with this valuation if we come to the entrepreneur when uh, she's not raising round or when it's early, we're trying to give fair market price. I would be like afraid of very good deals. It's usually indicator of the problem. We'd rather go after uh, deals where we see great opportunity versus deals which are just at a good price, but where you take too much of the risk. Sure, great. Any, any other uh, quick comments on this one? Yeah, I look for size of the market and the hook. Do you have intellectual property? that gets you a proprietary position, then then uh, the valuation for me goes up. Sure. I think it's always a good balance between the vision and the founder. To some extent, I agree with what Darren said, like how much you, how much you believe in that founder, that person, because the thing with the early stage companies that there's always gonna be another pivot in the, maybe even the next week or the next month. So in three months, the company you're looking at is totally a different company, right? Interesting case last year, Luckin Coffee in China went from founding to IPO within a year. And they raised so many rounds within that year. So each month, the company is a new company. So it's always good to balance the vision and the presence. Great. And then I'm um, open up for questions in just a minute here. But I just want to go through, uh, if you could say in one sentence exactly what the most valuable type of deal flow uh, you'd like to get uh, from the event here today, then we can help you make those connections here in the room. Uh, Darren, why don't we start with yourself? Uh, what's the type of company? Uh, we know you like ones that have gone bust or are distressed. That's part of it, obviously. Uh, for our, our thesis is all about uh, something called future of work, and that means automation. So we look at productivity, not the software part of it, but think about the automation part. So think of big software and all the gaps that need to be automated. So that's what we're looking for. Um, so if there's deal flow like that, very interested. And if there's people that also are looking to invest, we'd love to speak to those as well. Great. Masha? We look at com uh, early stage companies obsessed with their customers, which uh, use their time and effort into learning as much as they can about their customers where customers cannot imagine their life without using the product that company produced. Great. Thank you. David? So we invest in seed stage companies in the technology arena, but specifically we back entrepreneurs that are either female founders or foreign founders of companies. 
So that's what we work for. Great. Thank so you. So I'm looking for uh, solutions to broader problems in healthcare, and I'm looking for teams that are focused uh, and they have some kind of hook, uh, intellectual property pattern. The, the stronger the patents, the better the deal for me. Great. Uh, I'm looking at uh, <coughs> projects and investors who have a really keen understanding of long-term macro trends like demographic, uh, demographics. Great. And uh, we'll walk a microphone over to you. If anyone has a question, please raise your hand. We can call on you. Great. One minute. We'll uh, bring a mic over. Alan up in the front here. Oh, thanks, Charlie. Um, something struck me about what you said. You were talking about in the beginning that, that your, your group is, is, is really focused on metrics. And so the question is, is what is the single most important metric that you're looking at using your, your uh, analytics, let's say, okay? So what is the most important factor in the success of a company? Uh, Startup. Yeah, so, so for me, I like playbooks. I'm a playbook, playbook guy. I've, I've studied Ray Dalio's principles. And for me, it's pain, reflection, equals progress. So for me, I look for the pain. I look for how they reflected and the progress they make through it. Because if you're failing, it's either you, your product, or the market. So I need to dig into those three. I think that's, you can go any stage. So that's kind of the, what I look at. And then I can layer each way. So there's a, there's a lot of metrics out there right now that are talking about timing. Like, in, you know, if you look on YouTube or look at some of these research that's been done, like at Stanford, they've been talking about the role of timing and all of that. So does that a component of what you're looking at also? If I had to weight all of the metrics Timing is probably the least weighted. Um, that's just God smiling on you. You just built it right. and you got it there. I think when I look at timing, when I look at a lot of deals, I think a lot of people are building for today and they don't realize that in three years is when you'll be ready and hopefully your product is ready for three years. Um, but I'm constantly just looking at pain, reflection, pain, reflection. How did you break through it? How did you break through it? Right, great. Thank you. Uh, I think we have time for one or two more questions. I think we had one on this side. Yes, Jason, we'll uh, bring the mic over to you. It's millennials these days. Huh? Okay, that's that's interesting. That's that's interesting. Uh, a little bit hotter here. Uh, hey guys, great panel. Um, I'm going to ask the same question that I asked the last panel, Jason Ma because I find it to be a bit of a revelation, right? So it is one thing that you like to improve on personally or professionally, what was not working for you, what would it be? Maybe we can have uh, one or two of you that have the most interesting answer. I, mean I, I could start if you wanted, or am I talking that much? Um, I love that question. I, I, when I mentor founders, I talk to founders, I ask them the same thing. So for me, um, I'm, I believe as a belief of self-audit. And I, um, one of our, our, our investors in my last company is Gary Vaynerchuk, and his belief system is understand your strengths, understand your weaknesses, and go in all in on your strengths. 
Um, and for me, when I, when I did my self-audit strengths, weaknesses, the thing that, that really just came back the most is, is really um, have the self-awareness to understand the difference between listening and hearing and let people finish their question before you think that they're asking. And so just for me, just a lot of, lot of self-learning and, and understanding the difference between listening and, and hearing and the layers of that. Great, thank you. And I just realized if a few of you are blocked by the podium, we have plenty of chairs that are not blocked by the podium. If you actually want to be able to see the discussion panelists better, feel free to migrate this way after this panel. Does anyone else want to answer I that one? I wouldn't say not working. I would just say there, there is a space where I'm digging more into. We are very hands-on and very value-add. We have uh, team members which are full-time working just to serve portfolio companies. And the better work we do with them on PR and marketing sides, the more of our time and our attention they want. And like when our portfolio founders raise new rounds, I'm literally like sometimes copy editing the emails to investors. It's like doing lots of actual work which are loved by the founders, but you cannot serve like 50 companies equally well, right? And it's a question like, but on the same time, if you invest on very early stage, I think it's like, dangerous to make like less than 10 investments every year because otherwise it's just likely not going to work in terms of economics. So it's a balance between making good enough number of investments and then keep and stay hands-on and we finding that we can build up internal procedures and uh, we can learn how to be helpful and how to make it more scalable and on the same time what kind of parts we can optimize so everything you do for them, for example introductions, or work with the media, you have reputation on the way that every introduction you make will be taken and everything you do for them will lead into something, will lead into the deal, will lead into publication, will lead into the person who hired. So uh, it's, it's a question like how to balance this, your involvement and the amount of companies you need to invest in in order to be successful on early stage. Great, thank you. Uh, we're just about uh, out of time. We literally have a minute and a half left at the most here. So does any one of you, though, have something you just really wanted to make sure you got in on the panel uh, that you wanted to share with the audience today, like a last uh, closing thought? Uh, maybe I want to rebound on the uh, question just before, which is, you know, when we look at deal, the most important thing to us is the team. We look at everything else, right, like Darren does, but really the team makes a difference because if you're too early to market, the market is right, not right and so on, you want a team that recognizes it fast, that pivots fast, and then that executes well uh, too, right? So a, a strong team is really the key. And we spend a lot of time uh, looking at that both personally but also using AI to analyze people's personalities and understand what the makeup of an entire team is. Great, thank you. No one and else? To the question of uh, what we can improve on better, personally I think uh, it's widening my horizon uh, I, I think I pride myself to be pretty familiar with the U.S. ecosystem and the Chinese ecosystem and the fact that I'm working for a European company, I'm fairly familiar with it. But recently I took a trip down in uh, Latin America in so many different countries and the ecosystem down there is so interesting. So there's always a blind spot, maybe it's Middle East, maybe it's Africa, so keep your eyes open. Great. I would say uh, when you uh, start working with entrepreneur, I would look not just on valuation and market size, I would look at the person and think about do can I imagine seeing this person in my life in 10 years? What I see is the deeper your relationships, the longer you knew each other, the more opportunities you bring to each other and 
you grow together and I think it's really important to not get blinded by valuations and by markets and just ask yourself a question, do I actually want to work with these people for many other years because looking back I just see all best opportunities came from entrepreneurs we wanted to work with and I think for investors there is no better assets than the reputation that you have in founders community. Great, thank you. So we're uh, going to break now. Before we give them a round of applause though, we're going to have the panelists uh, exit the room. Uh, we're going to have the panelists exit the room before people try to network with them. We'll give you a round of applause before you exit though. And then we'll have our next panelist come up to the front stage. It's going to be a resilient real estate discussion panel. Everyone knows we're not early in a cycle. Uh, but no one knows what's going to happen next. We're going to talk about real estate investments and what people are doing right now in their portfolio, deals are closing, et cetera. So with that, let's give our panelists a round of applause. <laughs>